Before we launch into the brain-friendly workplace with Frederica Fabricius, I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate. Next Estate are specialists in English-speaking market for buying, selling, and managing properties in the German market. They're Berlin-based, but you can find them online at next-estate.de or next-estate.com. We also have a copy of the brain-friendly workplace up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you'll be in the hat to win a copy of this brilliant book. Let's get started. And I'm going to show off your sticker. <laughs> Today's book takes a fresh perspective on what it takes for people to flourish in the workplace. Our guests suggest that when we focus on neurodiversity, we respect people's deeper drives and motivations, and then companies will naturally achieve better results as a side effect. Our guest coins the term neurosignature, and she warns that we must keep in mind that neurosignatures should not be thought of as static. For those wondering what a neurosignature is, we will explore that soon. Our book today highlights the basic fact that we need more thought diversity, and that motivates people in very, very different ways. There's so much in the book, so many interviews with leading executives who have managed to create brain friendly environments for many companies like Patagonia. And the great news is I'm gonna hold the book up here. See that red sticker there? Our guest has a Wall Street Journal bestseller. She is the author of The Brain-Friendly Workplace. She is a friend of the show. Welcome back, Frederica Fabricius. Hi, Aiden. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to have you back. And behind me here on the shelves, you'll see, I, I, as you said to me, I'm like a grade A student. I have both books, what, your earlier book as well. You're so, such an overachiever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what my neurosignature, I was actually trying to figure out my neurosignature. We'll come to all that in, in due course. Let's jump into the book because we want to get through as much today. Today is a deep dive into the book and Frederica has kindly offered us her time to go through that. As you identify in the book, the working world is changing. And that is one reason we have seen such a massive growth of this show, for example, because many people are trying to seek out how can they create a better life for themselves. And it's certainly behind your motivation for writing this book. You have yourself experienced as an executive, a high powered jet setting executive with a family, how difficult it can be to survive in the workplace when the workplace is not designed for the modern worker. So maybe we'll start with that motivation behind why you wrote the book. Yeah, I just think the way we're working isn't working. So many people are dissatisfied. So many people are stressed. And just as many people are bored at work. And I just think it's a bad thing when you are on a Monday and you feel like, oh, no, it's Monday. I don't want to go to work. It doesn't have to be that way because our brains are wired for work. We do want to be productive and can be more productive when we work in line with how the brain works. So I think that many of the things companies are doing to, you know, make the workplace more attractive to people, to retain talent are just stupid, not working. And I think it's all out there. If you look at the neuroscientific research, there are so many simple science-based things you can do to retain people, to make people more productive, to increase well-being. And I put it all in the book. 
Let's start with one of the things, and you mentioned this in your previous book as well, The Leading Brain, which is also a magnificent read. The way, by the way, I perceive them, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that The Leading Brain was more for the individual. So this was looking at you as a leader in your organization or as a work worker in the organization. And with your second book, The Brain-Friendly Workplace, you zoom out a bit and kind of go, okay, that's what you can do as an individual, but the workplace needs to change. And I love the metaphor you used where you talked to John Medina of the glove. So it has to, the glove has to fit. And we have five fingers and the workplace isn't designed. It has maybe three fingers on the glove and it just doesn't fit right anymore. Exactly. And I think there are simple things we can do. To give you some example, we can dive right into it. We all have different neurosignatures. I know you made people curious about that in the introduction. And what this means is that our brains are different and need different things um, in order to be productive and happy in the workplace. So I, for example, have a high estrogen dopamine neurosignature. And what that means is that you know, as far as dopamine is concerned, I'm curious, energetic. I love to explore. I love to do new things. I can never be bored. I need stimulation, intellectual stimulation. Doesn't mean I'm jumping off a cliff or something like this. It's more my brain is curious. And so I can't do the same, same everyday boring stuff. While I also have that estrogen component, so my focus is on people. I love making people's lives better. I love having harmony in my workplace. I couldn't work somewhere with a toxic, nagging boss who micromanages me, for example. So I've created my own brain-friendly workplace, and I think that's what many people do who drop out of the corporate workplace and create their own brain-friendly workplace that fits their neurosignature. And I think it's a big miss for companies because they could provide a brain-friendly workplace too, and they don't. Let's talk about some of the experiences you had, because really you were solving a problem that you'd experienced firsthand, and not just once, but many, many times. And one of the things that will resonate with so many of our audience, many of our audience, by the way, work in L&D and human resources. And one of the most dreaded lines an executive hears, as you identify in the book, is, I'm from human resources. We have diversity training and everybody's like, oh no, because it's so difficult. And what you have then is people walking on eggshells, both in the training itself and then in the workplace afterwards, kind of going, I don't know what to say. I feel I can't say any more, anything anymore. I can't speak my mind. And then on the flip side, you have, tra you have like Myers-Briggs, some type of profile test on people. And then everybody gets labeled, oh, you can't talk to Frederica like that. She's a blue. You can't talk to a blue like that because oh, Aiden, don't mind him. He comes across rude. He's a red. This, again, is a huge problem. And you experienced this firsthand when you had training to be more assertive, where they were trying to get the women in the organization to step up into leader position, leadership positions. And incredibly, instead of leaning into the skills that you have, they try to make you more masculine. Yeah, I was crazy. Maybe let's start, you know, you touched on many topics and that. So let's get started on that. Maybe I can share that experience. So it was very funny. I worked in a, you know, very, let's say elite a leadership uh, consulting company. And there were very few women. And of course, they tried to improve those statistics. And what they did is they offered those leadership trainings for women 
So we got together in this boardroom, and the first thing we were to do was to shake hands, and then everybody's handshake was deemed too too weak. And so then we had to shake harder and harder until it was really my hand was hurting and I felt like a lumberjack. And then we had to clap each other on the back. And then we had to sit with all those shoulders spread out and, you know, taking up space. And then we learned to speak in a lower voice, which I have, you know, like, hello. Then we learned not to smile because smiling is seen by many as a sign of weakness. Then we learned to give orders instead of asking questions. So rather than, you know, for me, it's more natural to say, you know, would it be okay for you to finish this work by tomorrow? I'm very inclusive. I'm very empathetic. So if I work with somebody in my team, I'm always making sure they're all right. I'm not just saying you finish this by tomorrow. I tell them, hey, how does it look like? Do you have time to finish this by tomorrow? Does it work for you? That would be more natural to me. And I learned that that's wrong. You need to be assertive. You need to be, yeah, behaving like a high testosterone, uh, alpha uh, animal in the room. And I think that's so insulting in a sense because it doesn't even solve the problem. Of course, if I behave like this, I've seen many women behave like this and get ahead and be successful, but how happy will it make you? Like, how do you feel if you feel like you have to be someone else in order to be successful? Isn't that like, do we really want that? Is that making the workplace a better place? Wouldn't it be better to embrace our natural strength and to bring diverse skills to the workplace? We have some of those who like to bark orders and they can be very successful. It can be enjoyable working with them when you find the right way. And others who are more inclusive, more empathetic. I think we need more diverse styles in the workplace. And so what I've identified in the book is a neural gap. Because I originally wanted to look at gender differences in the workplace because I had that hypothesis that many women at the top actually have a neurosignature similar to the men at the top. And that turned out to be true. So we have a lack of diversity when even the women in leadership position need to behave like men. Let's face it, that doesn't really bring in so much thought diversity. And I think I'd rather have a workplace where everybody can be themselves. So if somebody is of that more dominant personality, fine with me. Just don't force me to be like that. You know, if somebody is more creative, let them be creative. If somebody's more assertive, let them be assertive. If somebody wants to be very empathetic, let them be empathetic. But don't put people into these boxes and tell women how to be more like a man. So I started my book with this anecdote because I think it's just so much about diversity training is just going in a wrong direction and it's not really helping women. It reminds me, Frederica, of there's a quote by Einstein, and he, he's talking about how trying to squeeze a, a square peg into a round hole is so detrimental to the individual. And what he said was, if everybody's a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it's stupid. And I know Many people, for example, as you say, you are forced to behave a certain way or wear a mask that you may get to the top of the ladder, but then realize, actually, I've been wearing a mask all this time. And I, I think about how exhausting that is. If you have to behave in a certain way that, that it betrays who you truly are, 
it's exhausting and it's such a waste of life. And it's one of the reasons that drives certainly me for the show is to try and introduce people to people like you, where they can get a fresh perspective and kind of go, it doesn't need to be that way. And it's not you that's broken. It's actually the system that's broken. Yes. And so what I'm suggesting in my book is rather than changing the people, fix the workplace. So rather than trying to tell people how to behave, how to think, how to act, create conditions that bring out the best in people naturally. It's a bit like a nudging approach. If you put all the sweets next to the counter in the supermarket, people are going to buy more chocolate. If you fill up those places with healthy snacks, people are going to buy more healthy snacks. And it's similar in the workplace. We are all nudged by our surroundings. So what I'm suggesting in the book is, for example, if you give people reasonable work hours, uh, paid maternity leave, uh, ability to move throughout the day, the ability to get into flow, um, you know, if you set up a brain-friendly workplace, that's actually going to reduce bias. That's going to bring out the best in people. And I think we also need to give people the autonomy and flexibility to work in line with their own preferences. I think that's what everybody's craving at the moment. People realize during the lockdowns and restrictions that things can be done differently. You can do things from home that you didn't think were possible. And so in a sense, we have learned that, you know, there's more than one way of working. And so I think it's good to give people that autonomy as long as they deliver. And um, yeah, I think we, I think this, let's say, educational approach to diversity training is very often backfiring. A diversity is very important. I just think if your diversity training is not having an impact why waste the time, energy, and money of all these people involved? Then it's just lip service. Then it's just to check the box. We've done diversity training, but if it doesn't really lead to more diversity, what's the point? And so I think we can do much better. Yeah. And we're going to get to all that. And, and one of the things you alluded to there, we'll come to as well, which is the outcome economy. So it's not about the hours you put in. It's about the output that you come away with, which is so important. And again, a reframing of what's already staring us there in the face Maybe one more thing before we get into neurosignatures and particularly the four neurochemicals that are involved in a neurosignature, because we can then start to map ourselves as well and understand ourselves better and perhaps our colleagues. But one of the things I thought about was how we got here, how we got to the workplace being this way is quite important because if, for example, executives are being trained to be more masculine, there's a reason. And that's because many of the executives in charge or the owners of many businesses have been that way, high testosterone, high dopamine individuals. And as a result, they see that as a strength in others. And I thought about how, I don't know if you know this, but I found this out recently, Henry Ford at one stage wanted to create an electric vehicle right at the start of the industri industrial revolution. And I often think to myself, imagine if we took that pathway instead of a, a diesel or a petrol vehicle, we went with electric vehicles. I wonder what the world would be like today. And I often thought the same about how with the workplace, if we had a more neurodiverse, a more open neuro to neurosignature environment, what would it be like today? So maybe you'll share about how we got here. 
Yeah. So the interesting thing is most people at the top of organization, and that was based on data that I was gifted by NeuroColor, a company that measures those neurosignatures, founded, co-founded by Helen Fisher and Dave Lapno. And I asked them, I approached them and I said, listen, I have this hypothesis. I think that people at the top are so undiverse. They're so homogeneous. I'd love to see is there a difference between the neurosignatures of people at the top and below, and are there any gender differences? And when we looked at the data, it turned out that most people at the top, or many people at the top, let's put it that way, have a high dopamine testosterone neurosignature. And what this means is they are ambitious, they have high energy, they tolerate high stress levels. And these are great traits. That These are, let's face it, these are great traits in life. When you have a lot of energy, you can face a lot of stress, you get a lot of stuff done, you're straightforward. There's nothing wrong with that. The only thing that happens is that, of course, they create a high stress environment for everyone else, because I think if I can stomach it, they can stomach it. When in reality, the people at the other levels in the organizations might have very different neurosignatures like high estrogen or high serotonin, and they have complementary skills that are very important, like empathy, like lateral thinking, like risk aversion. If everybody's just taking crazy risks all the time, you end up with all those scandals and compliance issues. So it's good to have people with diverse skills in an organization. And what I think is the, the reason why so much talent is draining and, and leaving the companies is because the people at the top are creating a high stress, high competition environment that is great for high dopamine testosterone neurosignatures and alienates the rest of us. And I think we need to expand our understanding of diversity to also include neurosignature diversity. Of course, it's important to be mindful of social economic background, of race, of gender, you know, of all the inequalities we have in the world. But the one piece I find missing here is neurosignature diversity. Nobody in the HR department is thinking about how to increase thought diversity. And I find that's a mistake that I wanted to fix with this book. And you certainly do a great job of bringing it to light as well and describing it so simply, which is a difficult thing to do with neuroscience. You mentioned there Labno and Fisher. So Helen Fisher in particular, huge fan of her work. And you, she's been a mentor to you as, as well. I was jealous of you, by the way. <laughs> she's amazing. She's my role model, I think. You know, whenever she publishes something, I read it. It was funny, actually, because when I uh, finished my neuropsychology studies, I originally wanted to become a researcher on love and relationships. So I read Helen Fisher's book on how to find your life partner based on personality differences. And I sent her a letter applying for a PhD, which she just ignored. But then I used her research in the business world. And then we got in touch because I had used her finding findings from the romance and love world in the business world. And that's what she's doing as well now. So it was very interesting. As Dave Lebno once said, and I think in an interview is he realized she wasn't studying love. She was studying relationships and relationships are so important, of course, in the business world. So I find everything she does just so fascinating and interesting. So 
I think I met her at this DLD conference in New York a couple of years ago. And then, yeah, she was in my first book. And then she hosted my book launch party, which I will be very grateful for. And then they gifted me this data for the book. So it's been a very, very fruitful um, collaboration. Let's get into neurosignatures because you, as you said there, you built on the work of Fisher. And then you looked at the different chemicals involved. So when you're talking about a neurosignature, you talk about dopamine, serotonin, estrogen, and testosterone with a caveat. And the caveat's important that they all exist on a spectrum. So you can be different, you can have the same neurosignature, but be on a different spectrum from someone else. So over to you to maybe just maybe we'll start with dopamine. Yeah, so it's very interesting. It's actually not about dopamine levels. It's about the dopamine brain system. And that's the same for all four of those um, hormones and neurotransmitters. So we all have dopamine. And we all have brain regions associated with dopamine. So when I talk about dopamine in the book, I talk about all these effects. It can be blood levels. It can be brain activity. There's nature and nurture at play about 50-50. So we're both talking about genetic influences, but also about environmental influences that influence our brain systems for all of those four. I just want to say that up front because then people have all these questions like, can I change it? You know, is it genetics? Then everybody goes crazy about those things. So I just want to be clear. It's nature and nurture. It's both genetics and epigenetics and, and environmental influences. And of course, it can to a certain degree change in our lifetime, um, but not completely. I wouldn't say that somebody who is let's say naturally a very high dopamine person will suddenly turn into very high serotonin person. It's very unlikely. It can happen, but it's just unlikely. So I think it's more, you know, it's all on a spectrum. And so let's dive into dopamine. Dopamine makes people energetic, curious, future-oriented, adventurous. Think of somebody like Richard Branson, you know, who's like building all these different companies, climbing all these mountains, exploring all the time so that he would be to me like a typical high dopamine person. And, but it can take many different forms. So some people take more physical risks. Some people take more mental or psychological risk. For example, I'm very high dopamine, but I would never do anything physically dangerous like risky car driving or drugs, zero, like no interest. I have five kids. Hello. Like that would be just stupid, but I do love taking psychological risks. I love exploring. I like trying new things. I've moved 21 times in my life. So I'm an explorer, but not in the sense of doing something crazy, stupid. So dopamine influences all of us. And there are some ups and downs as with all things. So the positive qualities are, of course, all the good ideas, all the creativity, um, all the curiosity. The downside is that somebody high on dopamine could be unreliable, um, could overwhelm other people with all that energy. You know, I have a high dopamine friend who's just like too much for me. It's like I can only handle him in like small dosages because it's just like 
give me a break kind of energy, you know, like after a while. And so it's good to understand and to see that quality in people. I think it's pretty easy to see some people are just more naturally curious than others or more willing to take risks or just more adventurous, uh, also more charismatic. If think of somebody like Obama, you know, he's like this smooth person. Uh, so, so it's that kind of quality associated with dopamine and the complementary brain system to dopamine is serotonin. So with serotonin, you would have somebody who's very reliable, cautious, but not fearful, conscientious and loyal, loves traditions, is very meticulous and detail-oriented. And um, the interesting thing is that it in the corporate world, we tend to adore the dopamine people and we tend to have a bias against the serotonin people. And I think that's a big problem because look at the banking bubble, you know, crisis, look at all these scandals. They've all been to a certain degree being caused by high dopamine people who took crazy risks. So you need that counterpart of somebody saying, wait a moment, have you really checked all the numbers? Uh, you need people who actually look into the details and make sure things are done correctly. When I go and, or let's ask you, Aiden, if you were to have heart surgery tomorrow, would you take a high dopamine experimental surgeon who loves to get the Nobel <laughs> Prize for developing a new procedure? <laughs> and who Maybe like, with my neurosignature, I might go, it's worth the risk. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, maybe you also want somebody who's like very trustworthy, very cautious, does all the extra things to be, has all these checklists to make sure the anesthesia is like a hundred percent perfect, really taking good care of people. So I think it's complementary skills and we tend to adore the risk seekers and to underestimate the, like the guardians of tradition and, and, it's a problem. I think we need both, not just in business, but also in life. It's complementary skills. And as Helen Fisher likes to say, there's an evolutionary design behind this. It's good that we are not all the same. It's we're stronger if we're different. And I don't see much respect for that in the workplace. There's this streamlining idea. If we're all the same, then we will work well together as a team. If we all have the same opinion, then we'll just make it no. It's good to have different people, different skills, and it just makes life a bit more difficult because, of course, if you surround yourself with people who are similar to yourself, you understand each other without much communication. So if you want to build a diverse team, you need to improve your communication skills in order to really have that respect to really understand how other people tick. One of the places where, just on that point, and we'll, we'll maybe towards the end of the episode, we'll come to group flow as the antidote to group think. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that you talk about, and again, you're a dedicated chapter to the children. And if you take, for example, the education system, even like you said there, from a neurodiversity perspective, we hire from the same schools because it's reliable to hire from the same schools. I even think about how in business, most organizations hire the same consultancies and the consultancies almost they outsource their thinking to the consultancy and so in some cases it's it's like an insurance policy it's like oh well if if the strategy fails it was the consultants let's get a new consultancy let's not fire us because it wasn't us but then how are you actually doing any of the thinking yourself in the organization 
And then on top of that, like you say, if everybody at the top of the organization has a similar neurosignature, there is no diversity of thought. So how are you going to be innovative in any sense? Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I think a lot of this hiring consulting thing is defensive decision making. So you're hiring, you have a gut feeling of where you want to go. And then you hire all the consultants to back up your thoughts so that you are not to blame if something goes wrong. And so that you can say, I hired them and they did three months of analysis about this. So even if it goes wrong, it's not my fault their analysis must have been flawed. And that's wasting so much money and energy. And also, I have a funny story. The other day, I talked to to a CEO I, I work with, and he told me that he, you know, he used to like hire these consultants for three months to do a study. And he did what they used to do in like half an hour, just with a napkin, just kind of like, you know, thinking for 30 minutes. And he was like, I'm done. Uh, you know, with an analysis that they would take three months to do with two people full time spending millions on, on that. And he says, you know, it's pretty simple. You don't need all these consultants to do that. But then of course he takes responsibility and ownership of that decision. And that takes, that takes courage. And uh, we don't have much of that. People are afraid of risks. I understand why, of course. Um, but I think we should remove some of that red tape and simplify things wherever possible and spend our time more wisely and not waste it on useless analysis that nobody needs um, and that doesn't really improve anything. I love that. I'd love to work for someone like that. It's just like, well, make the decision, move on test the hypothesis see if it works yeah. in the field and then bring it back and we'll come back to a brilliant case study of that with you one of the case studies you ran with the chemotherapy drug which is just a fascinating story but we'll, we'll maybe mention that at the end of we'll explain mm -hmm. the other neurochemicals first involved in neurosignatures yeah. and then go this is how a neurosignature that di creates diversity of thought, and this is how the results are more innovative. We'll come to that in a second. But let's keep on the flow of the neurochemicals. Yeah. So let's talk about testosterone and estrogen. Testosterone has that quality of like, you're tough-minded, you make decisions, uh, quite linear thinking in a way. So it's like, it's the people who like to have one executive summary, three bullet points, Many of them enjoy technology. You can think of somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, like very like boom, this kind of, this kind of energy, but they can also be quite rude sometimes in a sense that tough mindedness, it's not like always associated with a lot of empathy. Um, so there is a positive quality to it. You don't have to guess. It's very straightforward. Um, you know where you are with these people. They're very efficient, have a lot of energy, high stress tolerance. While with estrogen, people have more of a people focus, uh, very good with words, high empathy, and a bit more lateral thinking. And lateral thinking means you find unexpected solutions. You see patterns in, in seemingly randomly data. And that's a different complementary quality again. You can think of somebody, you know, Oprah Winfrey, 
you know, like sitting on the couch, asking questions, uh, really putting herself in the shoes of her, of her, um, subjects. And so it's important to have all four qualities in the workplace, not necessarily always in one person, but to have a team of diverse neurosignatures. I think leads to the best results because then you have somebody who loves the tasks that you despise. And then you have somebody who covers your blind spots. And I see very few organizations that are hiring people for a diversity of thought. I see very little efforts to increase cognitive diversity or deep diversity. And I wonder why it's, there's so much potential there. It's such a, such a loss when you don't do it. So, and it would be fairly simple to do. And so that has always been a, an enigma to me when I see all these diversity initiatives, they are so superficial in a sense. It's only, I mean, I, I get it. There's ethical concerns there and I don't want to say, you know, but, but they don't really solve business problems. They are there to check a box to say, we've done this, we've tried, but they are not necessarily making people's lives better. <laughs> I couldn't stop thinking about uh, when you mentioned Oprah Winfrey there, when she interviews Tom Cruise and is like, Katie, Katie's awesome. Katie, Katie. Yes. <laughs> around the place and it's like uh, estrogen and serotonin and dopamine and testosterone, perhaps different neurosignatures. Yeah. And I have that example in my book, even where I say, you know, you have that quality of testosterone and estrogen in one room. And he was like jumping on the coach and she was like watching. So it's good to have those different qualities and it makes people's better, people's innovative abilities better. I mean, we're here on the innovation show. So it's all about leading to the best results. And I think in order to get more cognitive diversity into the workplace, you need to create not just one work environment for people, but actually different options so that people can choose the way of working that fits them and their neurosignature. I think that's when you have the best shot. If you force everyone to do the long hours and the jet lagging lifestyle of the high dopamine testosterone people, you're going to drain and burn out the estrogen serotonin people. So you need to create different work environments for different neurosignatures rather than telling people to change and adapt and change who they are, accept them as they are and just offer them different tracks in a sense, different ways of working. That's what I think is a much smarter solution than educating people how to behave differently, such as with this diversity training where I learned to speak in a lower voice. How is that making me smarter? What it will do is it will distract me in meetings rather than focus on the content. I will say, oh, I spoke in a higher voice. Oh, why will nobody will respect me now? You know, like I won't, how can you focus when you're focused on like taking much up space or did I, was my handshake strong enough? that's just so draining. And I mean, it's similar to the draining situation if you're homosexual and you have to pretend you're straight. I think that, I mean, I can't judge, I don't want, but I, I think it must be a similar quality that you just can't be yourself and that it takes up so much energy having to pretend and having to fit in when a reality you'd be so much better off being accepted as who you are without having to try to fit in. And 
as you say in the book, and we know this from a multitude of studies, a more diverse team and more diverse leadership team or executive suite leads to better financial results as well. And you mentioned their innovation. And I loved your example that you gave of, of yourself with a team of male colleagues, where you went to work on a, a project, which was this chemotherapy tablet that had no side effects, interestingly. And this is just a magnificent story of both innovation, but also of neurodiversity and the power of neurodiversity and different neurosignatures. Yeah, it was interesting because we were hired to support the launch of a new product. Um, and the new product had fewer side effects than traditional chemotherapy. So you would think that patients run to get that therapy because it, you know, no hair loss, no vomiting, not feeling terrible. I mean, that must be worth a lot to people. I mean, it's very, very draining to go through chemotherapy. But surprisingly, nobody wanted that wonder drug. It was just, it, patients were skeptical. And so my colleagues, they said, oh, we're just going to put together a short survey and then we're going to ask them why. And I said like, well, uh, do you think they will tell you? Sure, they will tell us and then we know and then we will adapt it and then we'll have a great launch. And I said, people don't know why. Because so much of our thoughts are governed by the subconscious. We know that surveys are mostly flawed. People check and write what they think the other party wants to hear. So when you, for example, there are studies that show where you do the difference, you ask people in a survey what they want to do, and you also measure their brain activity, and you can predict better what they're actually going to do based on the brain activity than based on what they see in the surveys. There was one experiment where they did this with sunscreen, and people watched like the sunscreen commercial educating them about how good it is for you to use sunscreen. And then they got to take home some sunscreen, and then they filled in the survey like, are you going to use sunscreen? How motivated are you to use sunscreen? You know, how often are you going to use sunscreen? People were like, love sunscreen, I'm going to use it forever now, you know, I'm going to use it daily. I'm going to reapply five times a day. And then they also measured their brain activity while they were watching the commercial. And it turned out that they could predict better based on the brain activity, their real motivations, how engaged they really were emotionally. And people didn't know when answering the survey. I don't think they were actively trying to betray or lie. It's more people don't know why they're doing things. We don't always have access to our innermost emotions and feelings and motivations. And still in the business world, people think that you can access to people's true motivations just by sending them a survey. No, you don't. Well, you're lucky if you do. I mean, miracles happen. But I told my colleagues, listen, that's stupid. Let's do it differently. Why don't we let... Um, we actually didn't take the patients because that would have been unethical. We took the patients... Uh, closest relatives who were like the caretaker. And I said, why don't we put these people into focus groups? And rather than just asking them these standard questions and questionnaires, why don't we let them act out the therapy? So I said, one person plays cancer. One person plays, I'm chemotherapy. I'm this new drug. I'm the doctor. I'm the patient. Why don't we let them kind of role play? 
my colleagues looked at me, they were like, oh, you know, like rolling their eyes. They were like, kind of like annoyed with me. Why is she making things so complicated? We can just take a survey. Like they really thought I was really stupid and crazy and annoying. Maybe. I mean, I like my colleague. They're probably going to hate me when they listen to this, but it's, it's not nothing personal. I just could sense a lot of like, Hey, stop being so complicated. But I, I tend to be pretty persistent. So I convinced them to do this. Anyhow, I could have, I should have just, I don't tend to, how do I say this? It's just because somebody tells me to do something doesn't mean I do it. So I always like, that's no. your estrogen. That's your estrogen. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure. It could be the dopamine. It's, I just don't like to follow stupid rules. So I always like, let, please give me a shot. Let's try this. And so we involved the marketing company that did this. And it was like the most amazing launch ever because what they found was that people didn't like the new drug because there were no side effects. So people are afraid of dying. And then you, when you get these side effects, you think the drug is working. You think this will help me. I need guns. I need war. I need to declare war on chemo with chemo. I need to like really fight this. If you just take a little pill, it doesn't feel like it's really doing anything. So that's what came out. And then they adapted the launch accordingly. And there were even prices for this launch and like it went stellar. And I think this marketing agency, you know, took on that approach. And that was all my idea, but I had so much resistance against this. Um, yeah, so so it's just a typical way of where thought diversity leads to better results. I'm not saying my colleagues were fantastic on so many other things like data analysis and putting these reports together. They did a lot of other things that were that I wouldn't be able to do as well. And I think a thought diverse team where you listen to each other and where you respect different approaches is so much more successful than a team where everybody just has a streamlined thinking of just one way of doing things. It's a brilliant story. And, and it's even more brilliant because you were the person who experienced it firsthand. And I think you're talking to the exact audience of our show. There's so many people listening, kind of going, that happened to me. Their colleagues shaking their head, kind of going, oh, here he or she goes again and rejecting the idea. And let's just stick to the script. And if you stick to the script, you're not going to get any new thinking. And no. I, I wanted to share just, I'd love you to share this, just a, a, a few examples of those neuro signatures showing up in the workplace. So like, for example, you mentioned how women are more are better at lateral thinking because of their neuro signature, because of their natural neuro signature, it allows them to be more open and think across different streams, etc. And then how, for example, if, if a man shows not so so high dopamine testosterone as a neuro sig signature, he's often deemed as weak. For example, smiling or being fun in the workplace or etc. can be deemed weak. But it depends on who the person is that's judging you, who the person is in the seat of power in the organization, how they judge you. So if somebody's very high serotonin and they like to follow the rules, etc. And I'm dopamine, they're kind of going to go, Oh, here he goes again, will you just stick to the script, etc. And this is where we get all these clashes. 
And I just find this absolutely fascinating and something that really needs to be grasped and understand both by executives in the organization, but also by HR and learning and development teams. Yeah. And I, I think, of course, we're using tools like the MBTI, the Myers Briggs. You alluded to this in the beginning. And the funny thing is there, I see, you know, that's kind of an approach where you try to talk about cognitive diversity. But there again, the tools that most people, most organizations use in the workplace have no scientific foundation. So they lack validity. Validity is whether the task is actually measuring what it's supposed to measure. It sounds simple, but like, let's say if you measure whether somebody's intelligent by asking them to jump rope. That's a test that lacks validity, to, to give you an example. So many of the personality tests in a workplace are not measuring the traits they're supposed to measure. That's a problem. And they're also not reliable. So if you test people again after a few weeks, you end up with a completely different approach and different result. And so it's useless. And companies are spending so much money on unscientific but popular personality assessments. People feel very happy about their results often. Because it's a bit like reading your horoscope. Uh, you know, it, it, it gives you that satisfaction of like getting a label and, and, and having things explained to you. But it, it's not necessarily accurate. And so I think that's also a change I'd like to see in the workplace. Yes, please use personality assessments. I think they are extremely valuable, but please make sure they're not just a lot of marketing hocus pocus. Use something that's actually based on science and not just somebody with a big marketing budget. So that's, again, um, where I see the value of it, because if you work well with the tool and if you have a great facilitator and if it opens up a discussion about people's differences and different preferences and different ways of working, that is valuable. But why not also use a tool that's actually val val valuable too? Maybe we will say something about that because I, I find that it can, you, you mentioned how people feel unhappy with the results. And, and by the way, I just wanted to. They feel uh, happy, not unhappy. They're uh, happy. Oh, sorry. Happy. Okay. So, yeah. so, so yeah. with 360s though, I don't oh, know. Oh, not so it. happy. Yeah. The, so 360s are really interesting. For those who don't know what a 360 is, this is where I ask all Frederica's colleagues to judge Frederica. And oftentimes then that's revealed to the individual through a, a, an executive coach, for example. And there they are extremely unhappy and often feel some way ostracized or mm -hmm. um, thrown out of the group or judged or they were speaking about me behind my back and, oh, my God, they all say X about it. And, and I've seen it. It can be extremely psychologically uh, testing to people. And, and actually damaging in some cases. And that's where I'm very, very careful with those tests in particular. But I thought it would be a nice segue to talk about an important aspect you talk about. And this is linked to oxytocin in particular, which is another neurochemical, where we are designed to be social creatures and to fit into a tribe. And that's why the fear of being ostracized is so great with a human species. I couldn't agree more. So 360 tools, most of them are very damaging because you get that anonymous negative feedback and then you spend your time thinking, who wrote that? So that's one problem. It's anonymous negative feedback. Nobody needs anonymous negative feedback. 
that just kicks off the threat response in the brain. It's much better to have unanonymous negative feedback. If you have critical feedback, tell people to their face. It's not enjoyable, but then at least you know where it comes from. Um, so it's less threatening than if it is in, in this collective anonymous way. And another thing that people tend to do in organizations that use these 360 tools, and I've seen it in action, is they trade with each other. You often know who is going to be asked to fill in your survey. And sometimes it goes both directions. So you're asked to judge them and they ask to judge you. Well, what do you do? You make a deal and say, I write something nice about you. Will you write something nice about me? And then you help each other climb the ladder with your positive feedback. So how valuable is that? So there are many ways to game those tools. Um, yeah, I guess I'm on a bashing mood today, like saying everything is going wrong, but I haven't seen much positive impact of these tools in the workplace. No, and, and actually, I, I experienced it firsthand uh, myself where I was brought into an organization as head of innovation, and then they gave us, uh, I don't know what the test was, so I'm not going to say, but they gave us a test, and I came out extremely different from the executive team. <laughs> and they sat down and we discussed them, and they discussed mine, and I was like delighted with myself. And they discussed it like, and this is just show you how neurodiverse it was. They were talking about it was the bad thing because I wasn't like the rest of them. <laughs> I was like kind of going, that's a really good thing. And no wonder all the thinking is the same in this organization. So it, yeah. it, it's incredible. And, and one of the things you mentioned, for example, was, and I, I can quote you because it's in the book on this, is you were saying about how a team were like, um, we need more neurodiversity. We need a black woman in the team. And then somebody quips from the back of the room, as long as she thinks like the rest of us. Exactly. I mean, that's terrible if you think about it. We will hire a black woman as long as she will fit in and, and be like us. And so I think that's very insulting. Of course, it's good to have more people from different ethnic backgrounds in organization, but let them be themselves. You know, not under the condition that they behave like everyone else. If you bring in somebody with a different background, that is a plus. This person may bring on different ideas, different thoughts, different ways of doing. And I see that as a plus, not as a minus. But it's, of course, genetically, from an evolutionary perspective, we are wired to seek similarity and homogeneity because that brings harmony into a tribe, so to say, into a group of people. And so, of course, people's brains trigger them to fit in with a majority opinion. I have a chapter in that book that nobody has asked for because I feel it's a bit of blind, blind spot. People don't, you know, I get all these keynote requests. Nobody has ever reached out to me and said, can we do something about our groupthink? Because people don't think they have groupthink because nobody thinks it's a problem. <laughs> if everybody thinks alike, it's great. Then we it's have my group favorite harmony. chapter, by the way, the, the, the groupthink chapter. Yeah, it's like I usually, you know, write about something that I feel people are interested in listening to because they sense, like, for example, I have a chapter about stress, how to, you know, navigate stress and change because I know people need this. But then I've also put in some chapters where I feel like they don't know they need it. Um, so that's one of those. Uh, we have a tendency to make everything mediocre because we want everybody to think the same, act the same, feel the same, be the same. And that's just 
limiting ourselves. We would achieve so much more, be so much happier if we were a bit more respectful towards people's differences, if we allowed more variety in our ways of acting, thinking, and feeling. It's so important. And it's so important to the audience of the show as well for Eureka, because so many times some people have been hurt by the workplace or felt rejected or ostracized. And it's because of that very thing. And and one of the big messages I, I really want to send out, and you do a great job of articulating this in the book is, it's not you, it's the workplace. And we'll come to a couple of examples in a little while. But so I want to mention Patagonia, Evelyn Doyle, for example, the head of HR, mm-hmm. I know, you know, she's a friend of the show. And oh, some of yeah. the other startups as well. Um, we'll we'll mention that you mentioned in there um, the the paddleboard company, which is a great story that you 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 tell. But let's because many people don't come to your groupthink chapter. Let's jump to that. Let's jump to <laughs> what is groupthink, and then the antidote to groupthink, which is group flow. And to talk about group flow, we'll have to mention what flow is as well. And many we've covered. We've had Stephen Kotler on the show before. We've covered flow. You've talked about flow before. But for people who are joining us for the first time, perhaps today, we'll describe that. So there's a lot in there. So I, I thought maybe groupthink, group what groupthink is, you've kind of alluded to it there, um, how to identify it, then flow and then group flow as an antidote mm-hmm. to groupthink. So a lot in there. So I'll get out of the way now. Yeah, it could be a book. Uh, one of the interviews I've done, the the podcast host said, I think you've written, you put 10 books in one. Because like every chapter could be a book on itself. So this groupthink. So what is groupthink? Let me start with a study. They asked people to look at faces of strangers. So you would get these pictures and then you'd have to, you know, say, is this person trustworthy or not? Just based on appearances. And people would cross trustworthy, not trustworthy and make judgment, turn in their judgments. And brain activity was measured while they were rating people on that scale. And then afterwards, they told people, listen, here's what you found. And here's what the majority of people were thinking of these faces. Actually, they think this person was not trustworthy, but you said this person was trustworthy. Hmm. Like, they just showed them how their opinion was different or the same with the majority of people. And what they found is that whenever people fit in with a mass opinion, they had like a little reward signal in their brain. So like a moment of joy, like, oh, I fit in. You know, this is subconscious. This is not necessarily something we do deliberately, but it happens every time you find yourself in a group of like-minded people. It's like, oh, you too. You also like um, spicy food. You know, you get that joyful moment when you meet somebody else who also likes spicy food. I don't know. It's just wired like, oh, yeah, I hate bland food. I love spicy. You know, I, I feel like this whenever I meet somebody who also loves to like eat really spicy food. So it's a natural tendency. And so then what they also had was a painful experience in the brain, like an error signal when you didn't fit in. So the moment the researcher tells you, you don't fit in with your opinion, we get a little bit like a ping by our brain that tells us your opinion is wrong. Something is wrong here. Careful here. You're not fitting in. And then what happened was that in 50% of the trials, people corrected their opinion to fit in with a majority opinion. So they subconsciously 
when they were giving the photos again to do a second rating, in 50% of the cases, they flipped the opinion to fit in with the majority. That is groupthink. That's the evolutionary basis behind it. And the behind it is that fear of not fitting in, the fear of being ostracized, the fear of being rejected from your group, because from an evolutionary perspective, that used to be a death sentence. Well, that's a lot to stomach. Most people don't know about this mechanism. We do that every day in all kinds of setting, maybe in your parent-teacher association, maybe at work, maybe at home. We always try to fit in. Um, and it's something your brain does for you without you even noticing. And it's especially strong when the person, let's say you're in a group with people and the boss has an opinion, people process that more strongly. So if the boss says, you know, this is a good thing, that's a bad thing, then many people will automatically adopt. So it's when you feel, so one thing that's strong on the brain is majority opinion. I think that's why so many newspapers are writing like 63% of people think blah, 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 blah. That's a very manipulative way to tell people what they should be thinking. That's what I see when I read something like this. There could even be a study behind it, but often it's framed that way in order to make people change their opinion. Oh, if 65% of Germans think we should do this and that, and I used to think differently, maybe I'm wrong. It makes people question themselves. So the media, of course, use that. Politicians use that. Any smart boss uses that to influence the people. And, and, and I just think it's good to be informed because the moment you know that that's how your brain works, if you realize you're not fitting in with the majority opinion, just because the majority thinks a certain way doesn't mean the majority is right. It just means the majority thinks that, not that it necessarily has to be true or the right decision or the good decision. And the other thing that people react very strongly to is all hierarchy. So if the boss thinks a certain way, people will often adapt to uh, fit in. I think in my first book, I had an example of this executive who started to do fitness suddenly. He used to be like drinking wine and having a bit of an unhealthy lifestyle. And then he decided to get fit. And he told me, it's a CEO. He told me like he became fitter. And then he looked around and he realized that his entire leadership team had gotten fitter because they all kind of like observed him doing this and they all kind of picked it up more or less, maybe subconsciously, maybe consciously. So people try to emulate the boss and to fit in and, and make a good impression with the boss. And so those two tendency of fitting in with a mass opinion, the, the majority and fitting and pleasing the boss, it has the advantage of creating harmony in a group, but it leads to terrible, wrong decision-making where a lack of innovation, stupid decisions all over the place constantly great yeah. it's so important and um <laughs> this leads us then to okay well how do you identify it and and you mentioned some of the things there it's where and i've seen this as well where the leader will use certain terms or certain language and introduce mm -hmm. that as a and even swear words or the power of the leader from even a diversity or an acceptance of different opinions has such a dramatic effect on how a team gels or not, as the case may, may be. But 
Yeah. Let, let, let's talk about because you do this as well in that chapter. You go, here's some ways to identify, and we won't be able to get through them all. Mm-hmm. So maybe some low hanging fruit ways of identifying. Yeah. Think, and then I th- then we'll get to group flow as the antidote to group think. I think a shortcut to identifying groupthink is when you feel yourself censoring yourself. Like you think something and then you stop yourself and think, ah, maybe best not to say it in public. You maybe say it to one colleague behind closed doors and you say, ah, oh, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but hey, they all seem to want to do this. So let's go along. So when criticism is not raised in public anymore, when people self-censor, that's something I think we've seen see more and more also in society as a whole that people get more careful um, what can be sad, what can't be sad, which you know it's very easy to get cancelled or to get like a public you know use the wrong product, you endorse the wrong person, you I don't know you people can get into trouble easily by saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. So everybody's very careful. So I think as a society, we have more and more of that. And then there's also that other people, there's a certain hubris um, often in the team. So people feel so full of themselves, feel so right on the right side of history, on the right side of like, they feel like they know it all. And there's no room for asking questions. So even already, if you ask a question, that's already putting you with the wrong people. So it's a bit this black-white mentality of the good people and the bad people. And if you're asking questions, you could already be classified with the bad people. That kind of dynamic is a red warning signal for, for groupthink in its most alarming ways. And then of course, dissenters are being shut down. And I have drawn a lot on the research um, from a Princeton researcher in my book, who says dissent is valuable even when it's wrong. So I think that is something people aren't thinking about. They think, oh, that dissenter, that annoying person who always asks these questions and makes our meetings longer. I hate long meetings, by the way. Um, But Dissent is valuable because it enhances everybody's thinking. It makes you question twice. And I think when that is not possible because people get annoyed when somebody has a different opinion, that's also a sign of groupthink. With the dissenter, if, if, you, if you look at all the stuff, all the ingredients you're offering here to a workplace, you, you say, for example, neurosignature, identify different neurosignatures, that leads to different, that leads to neurodiversity, that leads to different thinking, that leads to innovation. If that's coupled by a trustworthy, safe, psychologically safe environment where I feel I can dissent, therefore I get a holistic picture of any subject. But one of the things I'm 100% sure of is if you have to go to a meeting where you feel a little bit uncomfortable, and this goes to your three Fs of fun, fear, and focus. You're a little bit uncomfortable. There's a little bit of, it's not fear, but it's, I know I'm not just showing up to a meeting where I know everybody and I can get my cup of tea and passively listen. If I go to a meeting where it's a neurodiverse team and a diverse team who I'm not exactly friends with everybody, they all come from different backgrounds, different races, genders, etc. 
I have to be at top of my game. So I'm going to prepare better for that meeting as well. And as a result, the organization or the outcome is going to be better. And that is 100% sure. Exactly. And I think we underestimate, we think that everything is better when everybody agrees, when in reality, we we tend to have a lot of blind spots, a lot of bias. Uh, we come up with mediocre solutions, we suppress innovation. And so the big question is, how can we get into group flow? How can we experience the opposite of, of groupthink? And group flow is all about when a team works well together to the point where you feel you become one. So it's often being described by teams of surgeons who work together and then always feel like one moving organism because they, they counter, they, they, they help each other. Everybody's on top of their game and together they are better than they could ever be on their own. So it's a form of flow. Um, it's very addictive. Lots of chemicals are released. There was a recent study where they could find that when people get into group flow, it's a different brain activity than if you just get into individual flow. You know, it's like ballet dancers dancing together or an orchestra playing together. It's a different experience than when you're just playing by yourself, when everybody complements each other. And so that I think is the highest form of performance because humans are social creatures. We are wired to be social. And so uh, it should be a company's or a team leader's motivation to put people into group flow and not into group think. And the big question is, how do you accomplish that, right? How, how can we make it happen? So let's let's come to that because I mentioned a couple of things earlier and people who may have noticed that may be going on. When are you going to talk about that thing? One of the things was the outcome economy. And I'm going to tee you up with a quote for that, which will get you to talk about a certain organization. But just on the group flow, I've experienced group flow through sport. And it, mm. it I, I'm sure, and I don't know if there's any studies on this, I'm sure there are, but when, as you know, a memory or an experience is is infused with or energized by neurochemicals or emotion, they stay with you much longer. And and I just say to our audience, think of times, and it could be when you were a kid, that you were playing with friends, or you played a game, or the chess club, whatever it might have been, that when you work together, they were really fond memories. But it's probably that you might have been in group flow, or the emotions might have been so high that that has been just etched into your brain. That memory is such a great memory. And it is so difficult to come off. Like I, I talked about this before with sport. When you retire as a professional athlete from a team sport, you go through mm. withdrawal symptoms because you don't get those same chemicals from the workplace. And it can be a real trial for people. Ah, oh, that makes so much sense. And, you know, it's very addictive. And research has shown that, you know, there's all these positive chemicals. Then also your prefrontal cortex in a certain sense gets deactivated. So you get less a sense of self. You really feel one with the team. And that is an almost spiritual or religious experience, if you want to put that away. And how are you going to get that? Um, of course, there are other ways to get that. But I'm just saying, you know, as in at work, um, it's a very valuable way of enhancing productivity. And I think 
it starts with hiring people based on their strength. So it only happens when everybody's excellent. It's hard to get into group play when you have a mix of really good people and some not so good people. It's hard to get into group flow when some are at the top of the game and others are not. So you need a certain level of ex excellence to, to get into group flow or people need to be on similar levels of expertise. So it's hard to get into group flow when, you know, you're bouncing ideas back with somebody else. And then there's like just a dead wall, like that's very bad. So, but that doesn't mean that people have to be similar to each other. So the best thing is if you have people with different skills who complement each other, where everybody has their position. I'm not a rugby expert, but I assume there must be different positions. A bit like, I don't know, the quarterback and football or, you know, I'm really, I love sports, but I don't watch it. So I have no clue, but, but there must be the people in the front doing the goals. And then there must be people in the defense or something like this. So the best team is not when everybody is playing in the same position, but when people have their unique sweet spot. And uh, that's how it also works in the business world. And so we should hire people for their unique, complementary, different skills. And that's when you, you get into group flow. When everybody in the orchestra plays the same instrument, well, well yeah, what kind of music <laughs> is that going to be, right? We're not going to be buying that album. But I, yeah. I, 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 mentioned the outcome, <laughs> I mentioned the outcome economy, and I, I mentioned I'll tee you up with a quote here. So this is from a successful entrepreneur, and I, I'd love you to unpack this. And we'll mention this company, we'll mention... Patagonia as well, which is a company we all love and who have shown themselves to be even more in line with humanity than ever before with their recent moves as a company, which is just incredible. But in this, you said in the outcome economy, this is a quote from the entrepreneur. I told my employees, I wanted to give them two things. First, I simply wanted to give them their lives back so they'd have a pass to walk out each day at 1 p.m. as long as they proved highly productive. Second, I wanted to pay them better for their more focused effort that they would take. Their per hour ratings or earnings were set to nearly double overnight. We'd be rolling out 5% profit sharing at the same time, and each employee needed to figure it out for themselves. This sounds crazy to many CEOs who listen to this show, but the results were astounding. Yeah, that was Stephen Arstool. He's the CEO of Tower Pedal Boards and Electric Bikes. And I had read his book, I think it's called The Five-Hour Workday. Don't get me wrong, it could be, but a really good book, which describes his journey of offering people a five-hour workday and what happened and, and, you know, a real honest description. And then I reached out to him and I said, hey, you want to be in my book? I have a few questions for you. And the funny thing that happened was that he was so refreshing and honest. So I asked him, well, so how is the five-hour workday going? And he said, well, we don't have a five-hour workday anymore because people became entitled. I was like, uh, okay, here goes my interview, you know, like, hey, and it was so interesting, but, but they changed it. So what actually happened was in the beginning, it worked really, really well. 
So people became more focused, productivity was better, everything was better, it seemed. But after a while, people got so used to it. So whenever there was a crunch and you maybe have to stay five minutes longer to complete something, people were like, hey, well, I have finished at one o'clock. I need to go surfing. Like, there's no way. I'm dropping my pen here now. And so people kind of become a bit became a bit complacent in a sense. And he said the way he moved around that and found a solution was that he said, if we are growing, then people get the five-hour work day during the summer when they enjoy it the most. So it's something people kind of have to earn and everybody needs to work together to make it happen. It's not just a bonus that's been given to you for doing nothing. I'm not saying doing nothing, but in a sense, you have to earn it together. And I think that was very smart and that was very refreshing for me to hear. So he wasn't just like, you know, he tried it himself and sometimes it worked very well and sometimes it failed. And I loved how transparent he was about that. He could have just, yeah, I, I loved that interview with him. I found it so refreshing. You know, I had with this one question to him and I said, hey, um, are you hiring people for diversity of thought? You know, what are you? And he was just like, I go for grade point average. I was like, whoa, love that simplicity. You know, I, th I, I loved every second with this man on that interview. It was just, yeah, I think he does a lot of thoughts and he just does his own thinking on how he wants to run his business and he's hugely successful. I mean, if you look at it. So it was just one of my favorite interviews because he was just so, it wasn't this usual BS where you're like, oh, we hire for diversity and gender diversity and we hire for, I don't know. It wasn't all this corporate marketing. It didn't feel like a marketing brochure for his company talking to him. And I found it so refreshing because there's so much lip service out there and so much blah, blah, blah. And I love the freshness and the honesty and the transparency of sharing how he really is doing business. And I found there was a lot of humanity in it because he originally started the 5-0 workday also because he has a son and he wanted to be there for his son and not just miss out on his life and on his games. And he wanted to really be present in his son's life. And uh, how many men really do that? Yeah. Anyhow. And no, it's, it's, it's a great point because also what you said there, which really struck a chord with me was if he was the leader of the organization and he wanted to do this, he taught himself, I feel guilty doing it. And sometimes he'd go, oh, you know what? I, I can't pick up little Johnny and bring him to a soccer game because I can't be seen to do that because I'm the leader. And then instead, like you talk about in the book, he changed the workplace to go, well, if I feel this, everybody must be feeling it. I thought that was a key point from that story. Yeah, I found it so impressive. So really, I really enjoyed my interview with him because it was even more, I mean, I love the book, but then getting that update from him of after the book, what happened a bit like after the happy end in the movie, what happens afterwards to get those insights on how he, you know, what were his motivations behind it? What really happened to people? That was really, I remember that interview. I mean, everybody's always trying so hard to make a good impression 
And it, people always tell you the same boring stories that are just, you've heard a million times before. And, and this interview, there were so many refreshing ways of looking at things that I thought here, we really have an out of the box thinker who does things his way and tries to do well and adapts when things need to be adapted. And I also laughed out loud when he, you know, he, he got so many applications because word got around that he had this five day work week. So people were really like, Oh, I need to work there. He got so many unsolicited um, applications and he had to find an efficient way to deal with it because his five hour workday was going out of the window because he got so many applications. And so he asked people to send in this three minute video of explaining their motivation which everybody can record a three minute video, right? And he said there were some very bright, like the best of the best, really successful, talented people. And then there were just some people who were just like, oh, dude, you know, I love the five hour work day, you know? And then he could just like toss those people out right away. <laughs> I love that approach. I mean, it was so funny. Yeah. Speaking of the dude, you, um, you say, okay, well, people are going to be thinking, hey, oh, that, that, that's easy for some board company who, you know, load of surfers over in LA, but what about a real company? So you do call that, a, and I'm sure some people have thought that, and you go, well, it actually exists in many, many companies. One of those companies, so these are companies who are becoming brain-friendly companies. They've put things in place. One of them I mentioned at the start, I mentioned Evelyn Doyle, who's an Irish woman, by the way, which is why I mentioned her head of HR for Patagonia. And also a great friend, a guy I've come to know really well, who also, like you, kindly wrote a for, uh, wrote a, an endorsement for my book, but also was such a key influence in my book. He read, pre-read it beforehand, is the chair of Patagonia, a guy called Charles Kahn. And he has a magnificent book called Bulletproof Problem Solving. We did an episode on that a couple of years ago now, but he, he and Evelyn, I don't know many other people who work in Patagonia, but if they are like the type of executive that are there, you can see why it's such a, a successful company, but you then bring a whole new light to Patagonia by telling us what a brain friendly environment they provide for their employees. Yeah. yeah. I put them in my chapter on, um, neurobalance. So neurobalance is, I, I coined that term because I think we need to balance our brain and our bodies. And so when you take good care of your body, you also take good care of your brain. Most people think your brain is more something independent from your body in a sense, but actually those are very much linked. So when you move your body, you get more dopamine, you get more oxygen, you get more brain-derived neurotrophic factor, you get all these hormones and endorphins and neurotransmitters that improve your thinking. And I, I looked for companies who are helping people to get neurobalance. And then Patagonia came to my mind because they allow people to serve on, on, you know, at, during office hours. Um, they offer brain friendly, healthy snacks that are good for your brains. 
They allow people to go outdoors, which is really important for our brains to get that sunlight. I call this sports, sleep, snacks, and sunlight. So they have all those components. So people are not just glued to their desk in a very unhealthy lifestyle. They allow people to also move their bodies, go outside, and, and bring in that you know, um, neural balance. So I have them as an example of a company that does that because that again, to me is something that I wonder, why don't we have, you know, movable desks in offices so people can stand up? Why don't we have a couple of rebounders in offices where people can jump for five minutes during breaks? Why don't we take more outdoor meetings? Why don't we move more? People think work means you need to sit at a desk and not move when this is actually the worst thing you can do to your brain. Huh. Patagonia is doing this differently, and that may be part of why they're successful. I'm going to share absolutely fascinating research that you mentioned in the book, and maybe you'll unpack this because you say, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average American worker works 8.8 .8 hours per day. Yet, a study of nearly 2,000 office workers revealed that people waste so many hours doing the following. So get a load of this and look at yourself in the mirror <laughs> when you hear these stats. Reading news websites, one hour, five minutes. This is out of an 8.8-hour day. Checking social media, for 44 minutes. Discussing non-work-related things with coworkers, 40 minutes. Searching for new jobs, 26 minutes. Taking smoke breaks or equivalent, 23 minutes. Making calls to partners or friends, 18 minutes. Making hot drinks, 17 minutes. Texting instant messaging, 14 minutes. Eating snacks, 8 minutes. And making food in the office, 7 minutes. There's so much wasted time. And again, some of it's by presenteeism. So you're trying to fill the, the day to equate to the hours you have available. And sometimes I thought maybe as well, like you identify, maybe you're trying to find ways to give your brain a break because your ne brain needs a break because we're ideally wired for short bursts rather than these long slogs. Exactly. And so actually on average, we are productive for roughly three hours per day, three hours per day, but we're supposed to be in the office for eight. And what that leads to is long, inefficient meetings, people pretending to work, just sitting there for being there, for showing that they matter. And if we cut the waste and focus on what's truly important, we could have our lives back, I think. So that's basically also a message of my book. I think we can achieve more if we work less, because then you're you're forced to think, is what I'm spending my time with at the moment really valuable? Is it really important? Is it making a difference? Is it useful? So you question yourself. And I think when you pay people for what they deliver rather than how much time they spend on what they deliver, they will try to be efficient. They will try to get work done in the most efficient way. And I think that would be a good thing. So, you know, when I hire somebody to do something for me, I don't care when they work, how they work, what they do. Ideally, I wouldn't pay people by the hour because then people just try to bill hours, but they can drag out a task that takes 30 minutes and make it a three-hour project. Um, so I think we need to 
move away from measuring work in hours. We should be more thoughtful and thinking, okay, what do I want this person to do? And then people should do that. And I should pay them for that and for the value of the work, but not how many hours they spend doing this. I think that's just a, it's a, some setting people up for some very strange behaviors, like either billing a lot of hours and not doing anything or just pretending to work or just being very inefficient because in some jobs you're paid regardless of what you deliver. You're just paid for being there. And that leads to people not really doing their jobs because nobody cares how well they do their job. All you care about is that they are there. Uh, of course, there's a well value to being there for certain jobs that, you know, like in a hospital, you want people to be there to take care of the patient. So it's good to have somebody there physically sometimes. But for most jobs, hey, why don't we measure outcomes? So I coined the term outcome culture. And I think it will solve both the boredom many people are facing in the workplace where they're just sitting there going through the motions, doing routine, boring tasks that add no value. And it would also fix the stress problem that so many people are overwhelmed and stressed out, maybe also because they're inefficient. Like on the boredom thing as well, what you made me think is that everybody has a place. It's like the, the workplace is like a jigsaw and if if we understand everybody's neurosignature, it's like understanding what piece of the jigsaw they are. And like you say, who likes doing their taxes? Well, lots of accountants do. That's why they do that job. So if you can put people in the right place in the organization and understand the piece that they are, they'll be happier. And as a result of being happier, they'll be more productive. And then they'll actually get through the work quicker, like you do when you're in flow. And instead of then overwhelming them with more work, let them out to enjoy life like we saw with the, the board company. And as a result, the world will be a better place. I, I, I mean, that's the one of the many outtakes I had from your book was that, was that realization that, but that that's so systematic. The, the problem's systemic and it's gonna take a long time to change it, just like it took a long time to get here. But with, with work you're doing and hopefully sharing this work through keynotes that you do and writing the book and sharing your work on podcasts like this, I do think we can have a dramatic effect, not only just on the workplace, but on the individuals that work there and then them raising their children in a different way, because we're really going to have to do that as well. And I thought we'd land the ship talking about kids because... We need to understand how they think and learn and the examples we're setting for them for the future as well, because if we, if they, they learn by observation so much. And if they see us with these stressed lifestyles coming home from work, dad, will you come out and kick the ball at me? I don't have time. I have to read this paper for work tomorrow. Or like what happened to you, the CEO calls at 9 p.m. and kind of going, right, let's go through that PowerPoint now that we're presenting tomorrow. And you're kind of going, that's been sitting in your inbox for two weeks. And now you tell me that the respect for that and then the, the way we pass the baton on to the next generation is so important. You know, I put an entire chapter in there about how we can create a kid-friendly workplace. Uh, or, or how we can integrate work and life in a way so that kids don't take the toll. And 
I think Nelson Mandela said something along the lines that we can judge a society on how well they treat their children. And that resonates with me. I think we're not treating our children well. When you look at the UNICEF um, reports they're putting out on a regular basis, you will see that so many children have mental health issues. So many children are suicidal. So many children feel lonely. So many children are victim of mobbing or um, not mobbing. How do you call this in English? Um, are victims of bullying. Yeah. Uh, or bully other children. And I think it's symptomatic of our society. We're not really putting children first. And we are also raising kids to be parts of very dysfunctional societies. Uh, because if you grow up like this, you're also going to repeat that as an adult. And so I wanted to a, a change here. I think for me, it started by thinking, how can we be successful as leaders while also being great parents? It's something that most people cannot deliver because we have those insane work hours and we have those evening meetings and these evening dinners and we have a lot of travel at work. And it's almost impossible to be a CEO or a leader and to also be very present in your kids' lives um, because we have these unrealistic and very demanding standards. And what I'm saying in the book is in order to be productive, we don't necessarily have to travel a lot. In order to be productive, we don't necessarily have to have all those evening dinners. In order to be productive, we don't necessarily have to work long hours. And I think that's a game changer. I understand it. I get it. People want to be productive, but what if we can be more productive by working less and just working in a more brain-friendly way. So that's how that fits in here. I think when we change the way we work, we gain more resources and more energy and more time to actually allow our kids to have a great childhood. And that's a very delicate and very difficult balance for, I would say, 100% of all working parents. I still have to find parents who don't find it challenging to really make sure they get it all and they, they do it all. And so I think we need to help leaders and everyone to find a better balance. I feel, you know, you're, you're lucky. I feel I'm very lucky. I'm very grateful to have had an awakening where I just decided not to work in the workplace the way it was designed anymore. And it took it took going through some bad times in order to realize that and you know I, i've often said this in the show one of the times was when my kid he was only a baby and this i was on the phone supposed to be playing with him and he grabbed my hand and he's like dad being on your phone is not playing with me and it really made me go i have so little time really if you think about how many weekends you have with your children so there's 940 weekends before your child turns 18 right and and if you think about it like that as it, certainly as a dad in the early days you're the guy who puts out the bins and you're the guy who <laughs> makes the baby mix badly and get given out to for quite a while and then i have two boys then the boys start to realize and recognize and kind of go oh that dad that's actually all right and then your role changes and to not be there for such a short window of, of their life and yours, you never get it back. And, and that was the real realization I had is like, I have 
an opportunity here to have an impact on their lives while while they listen to me while I'm still cool because it's my job to to raise them to not need me anymore. So by doing a good job, they won't want to hang out with that anymore, uh, except for the the rare occasions that you do get to after that. And I wanted to have no regrets. And I think understanding what you're saying here in this chapter about children, understanding how to rearrange the workplace in order to give you that is so, so important. So nobody's sitting on a deathbed going, I wish I did more with my family. I wish I didn't work so much. I wish I didn't have the computer on my lap instead of connecting with my partner and Netflix and chill, whatever that might be, mean to different people is such an important message. And and that's one of the great messages I took for the book. So for that, and I hope it got through to our audience as well. I want to thank you so much. And also for the support you gave to me with endorsing my book as well. I wanted to say that publicly to you as well for, for that support. Final question is where can people find a, find you because you do a, a huge amount of corporate works, keynotes, etc. So where's the best place to find you for those keynotes? And don't forget, if you are booking Frederica for a keynote, chapter the, the chapter 10 on group things a great place to start <laughs> <laughs> this is one keynote nobody wants so the best way to find me is my website frikefabricius.com um where i have share all kinds of resources i have a blog i have a brain friendly newsletter where i share monthly brain friendly tips i'm also on linkedin other social media platforms but i would say my web uh, side is the way to start my newsletter. And then I would say my number one platform would be LinkedIn. And I, I mostly do corporate keynotes. So they're behind closed doors, but occasionally something is public. So that's also always, you know, good to watch out for those occasions. And, uh, I do most of my work virtually. So I think. Um, it's a very brain friendly way of reaching people, uh, both for myself, but also for others. So I'm there in the virtual keynote speaking space. And of course you can find my books, my first book, my most recent book, the brain friendly workplace. Uh, I think I'm findable, uh, if I have a difficult name for people. So Friederike Fabricius, you know, uh, doesn't spell easily. Uh, but I think Google has learned its way around that. And certainly all the work you've done, you're, you're definitely SEO friendly, search engine optimized, Friederica. It's always a pleasure. And there's so much more we didn't get through. We thought we'd do a deep dive today. We didn't get through so much, so many of my notes that I have there where you give so many tips of how to create a, a brain friendly workplace, how to de-stress your life, understanding stress, understanding sleep, understanding the right foods. There's so much more in the book that we didn't get through. It's a great book. I can see why it's a Wall Street Journal bestseller, author of The Brain-Friendly Workplace, Friederica Fabricius. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Next Estate. And I just want to remind you before we wrap up that there's a copy of The Brain-Friendly Workplace up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter where you'll be put in the hat to win a copy of this brilliant book. Next Estate are Berlin-based. They're specialists for the English-speaking market for buying, selling, and managing property in the German market. 
you can find them at next-estate.com or next-estate.de. See you very soon.